Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, application of the UNFC to geothermal energy resources. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on March 29th, 2023. And now your moderator, Tim Lines. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to this edition of SPE Live. And today we're going to talk about geothermal energy resources. And just to give you some perspective, I guess some of you may be familiar uh, with one or one or more of the many resource determination systems in the oil and gas industry, uh, there are similar ones within the mining and metals resources sector, and indeed, for that matter, within the wind sector and uh, the solar sector. And what we're going to do now is make is explore what that looks like within the geothermal resources sector as well. Now, my guest today is uh, Joya Falconi, and she is the ranking chair and the Professor of Energy Engineering at the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom, where she leads the Energy and Sustainability Research Group and is the Associate Director of the Centre for Sustainable Solutions. She's Vice Chair of the Bureau of the Expert Group on Resources Management of the United Nations Commission for Europe and Chairman of its Geothermal Subgroup. Since 2015, she has led a group of experts developing the application of the United Nations Framework Classification for Resources to geothermal energy resources. The latest update was in 2022 and is supplemented by numerous case studies. Joya sits on the United Kingdom Government Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Energy Working Group. She serves on the 2022 to 2023 Board of Directors of the International Geothermal Association and indeed, she is chair of that association's ad hoc committee for geothermal. She holds a laurea summa cum laude in environmental georesources engineering from Sapienza University of Rome, an MSc degree in petroleum engineering from Imperial College London, and a PhD in chemical engineering from Imperial College London. Professor Falconi, it is a great pleasure uh, to have you here uh, as my guest today. Tim, thank you very much for the introduction. It's a pleasure for me to be here today. I'd like to first ask you just a general question. Why do we need a resources assessment framework for geothermal? Well, very much for the same reasons why we have historically needed oil and gas and minerals resource assessment frameworks. That is to be able to assess the uncertainty the investment risk and the level of confidence in a given project. And more recently, the, um, the growing interest in, uh, in renewable energy has clearly raised the need to homogenize the reporting for stakeholders who need to have a common comparison framework for both renewable and non-renewable energy resources. Very interesting. Well, perhaps could you describe the framework to us? Yes, um, so the framework is, um, is called the UNFC, as you already introduced, and it's a, it's a project-based, um, so you, you, you take a project view and you enter the classification framework uh, with the degree of confidence on the estimate of the resources that can be recovered uh, by your project, and once you enter with that level of confidence, you then associate to it also a feasibility assessment 
from the point of view of the project's technical feasibility, but also economic, social and environmental viability. And what we are realizing today more and more is the importance of energy projects sustainability. So even if a project is say technically feasible, even if it is economically feasible and you've got access to financing, equally important are its social and environmental feasibility. Okay, just to clarify something from what you said there, when well, you talked about the word project, now is that because you're differentiating between something that the operator is going to do rather than actually what's down there, which I imagine we would all imagine is, uh, is infinite in terms of the amount of energy that uh, could be extracted. That's correct, Tim, and it's similar to oil and gas. You know, in oil and gas, we would talk about the accumulations in place in the subsurface, but that is not the same quantity that you are necessarily bringing to the end users or to the market at the surface. And so we need to make that realistic linkage between a subsurface potential and how much of that potential can effectively be brought to the surface, potentially converted, and then and then used by, by human beings. So indeed, in the case of geothermal, let's say you have sniffed the opportunity for a certain amount of heat in the subsurface. Well, that is what we would call the heat in place. But then in order to bring that heat to the surface, you need to have a carrier fluid, for example, water. So you need to be able to transfer that water from where it sits in the subsurface to the top of your wells and then maybe from there via pipelines to a uh, power plant. And then what you get from the power plant is electricity. And that is the product that you would be classifying under the UNFC. Okay. Perhaps you could illustrate. Can you, can you talk us through an example uh, that would uh, pick up on all the points you've just described? Yes, well, first of all, I, I can say that the, the UNFC is applicable to all types of geothermal resources. So I can pick examples that could be uh, EGS, uh, enhanced geothermal system examples, or advanced geothermal system examples, or much shallower type of resources like geothermal mine water. But um, to oh, give oh, you a... Can I interrupt? Because you... Of, uh, of three-letter acronyms, uh, which I think you and I might understand, but could you just say again what EGS and AGS are? Uh, I heard the, the words, in the, but what is that? What are those two techniques? Yes, and apologies if I, if I went too quickly on that. So EGS stands for Enhanced or Engineered Geothermal Systems. AGS stands for Advanced Geothermal Systems. Uh, AGS, AGS, so the latter is a more recent term which has been introduced, perhaps to differentiate closed loop systems from open loop systems. I'm probably introducing even more jargon now, which is certainly not helping. I'm aware of that. But coming back to EGS, if I make an example of that, that would be a situation where you have two boreholes, usually quite deep. Um, and then of the two boreholes, one is acting as the production well, and the other one is acting as the reinjection well. And between the two of them in the subsurface, you would envisage establish hydraulic communication by enhancing the subsurface, i.e. by creation of artificial fractures that wouldn't naturally be there. Sometimes the creation of artificial fracture is not required and you might need to just do a localized chemical stimulation of either the injection or the production borehole or both. 
When I talk about AGS, I can talk about closed loop solutions where you deliberately try to go away from the dependency on a fluid circulation in the natural environment down there and you create artificial uh, loops like an artificial series of pipes and you circulate a secondary working fluid brought in by you into the system to just extract the heat and not a geofluid. Understood. So coming back to an actual example then, I, I deviated you there from that, but yes, so take us through one of those and, and how you'd actually go about determining what the, uh, the, resource, the resources were and what category of yeah. commerciality or whatever. Well, for example, um, let, let's go, go back to the EGS example I mentioned earlier. Um, what you Let's start from the end of the use of the NFC. The end would be the quantification of your energy product recoverable from that doublet. Yeah. And if you are anticipating producing electricity from that EGS project, your energy product would be electricity. So then the question is, how much electricity can I recover from that doublet over its lifetime? Let's call the lifetime 20 years. It can be more, it can be less, but you've got to fix the project lifetime as we do in oil and gas. And it is around the established, tentative perhaps, but established um, project lifetime that you then assess the quantities that can be recoverable from that project and the associated um, commerciality of those quantities as well as the overall social and environmental viability of the project. So the project is whatever connects the subsurface to your final point of sale. Let's call it the power plant in this example. That's yeah. the project. And the quantities are the total quantities recoverable over 20 years from that project. And so the system, the NFC, allows you to then decide whether the project is ready to go whether it's not mature enough because perhaps you're still gathering the required permits or whether it's not ready enough because the technology is not ready or whether it's not ready enough because you are still at the very early stage of the initial uh, GNG, you know, geological and geophysical assessments. Okay. Do, do you have a specific example you want to share with us? It's not vital, other things we can talk about, but just to illustrate perhaps. Uh, well, I can give you um, only examples that we have officially um, published in the public domain, and uh, these are not necessarily of EGS projects, but um, to give the audience here also a reference that might go back to, in 2021, following a series of in-country workshops, we produced a report uh, that uh, captured high-level assessments of a, uh, the Mataloko project in Indonesia, the Wotton Wave and Loaded project in Dominica and also the Aluto project in Ethiopia. You might wonder why these particular locations, why these countries? That's because at the time, uh, the International Renewable Energy Agency, the World Bank's Energy Sector Management Programme and the International Geothermal Association joined forces to run this series of implementation workshops and uh, we collaborated with national, regional and local partners to assess the geothermal energy potential in those countries and to identify pathways for translating that potential into actual development projects. And, and 
I would like to add that also those those events were fundamentally aimed at building local capacity and creating ownership of the process on the ground. And so we used the UNFC in hardness. We sat down with, with teams, as you would do in, in a corporate environment, for example. You get your geologists, your geophysicists, your engineers, uh, your economists, and we tried to look at the entire feasibility of these uh, selected real-life projects. Okay. Can I... This is a matter of technical curiosity here, because you talked about the establishing uh, how much energy you could produce over, say, a 20-year period. Um, so how do you go about establishing that? I mean, I understand that you're, for the EGS example, you're drilling a couple of wells, an injection one and a production one. Um, but can you take us through a bit of the analysis that you then do to say, okay, in 20 years, this doublet will produce this much energy, whether it's heat or electricity? Yes, um, you would take very, very, very much the same approach that we do in oil and gas already. So you need to build your models. These models can be as easy or as complex as you want them to be, depending on the amount of data and the reliability of the data that you have at the moment when you do the assessment. And then you, you crunch these calculations in order to produce your estimate. And please know that this estimate can be, as we do in oil and gas, your P10, P15, P90 range of estimates, so that you have an envelope of uncertainty, what we call the level of confidence in, in UNFC uh, jargon. And you carry this forward uh, and you, you map this amount in the UNFC uh, framework. And, and, and so in, in geothermal, we would normally start from an initial conceptual model of the geology and also the thermal equilibrium status of the subsurface, whether it is equilibrium or whether you still have a dynamic uh, evolution of the thermal state uh, down there. You would uh, bring in uh, information on the geochemical composition of your fluids if you have it. Otherwise, you will have to assume it on the basis of local geological knowledge and maybe analog fields. Um, and then you would bring in the dynamic components, the flow components with the dynamic uh, simulator. Bef before you get into dynamic simulations, if you want to, you can take the classic uh, heat in place formulation. You superimpose an estimate of the recovery factor and, and you can run that through a Monte Carlo approach to generate your P50, P90 and P10 profiles. Okay, like a material balance effectively, or rather a heat balance instead of a material balance to change, change language there. So let's, let's go to the other end of the, the calculations you're doing, which is that you're saying whether or not this is economically a viable project. And of course, that I think to a large extent is, is a concern for many people, which is the, the value of a tonne of water is an awful lot less than the value of a tonne of oil. And so the revenue stream is, is a concern because unless that's sufficient to cover the costs and generate a reasonable rate of return, then the project's not viable uh, without some kind of a subsidy. So can you tell me, uh, I mean, where would you get your, uh, your estimates of what price you'd receive for you know, your, your heat or your electricity? What's, what are you doing in order to get some confidence in the, in, the, in the sale of the actual commodity? Well, for a moment there, I panicked. I thought you were going to ask me the magic question, how do you make a geothermal project economic? But thank <laughs> you. It's a slightly easier question. <laughs> um, so... You, um, uh, you would go by the, the the starting statement. I would say that obviously the commerciality of a geothermal project is so geographically dependent, and it is particularly so for heat when the product is heat, because heat is not 
uh, easily transportable. And so you need to have a local market wh where local means uh, next to or, or very close to where the heat is, is extracted. For electricity, you've got a bit more of, of, uh, of room, but you need to verify whether you've got the infrastructure to connect to, whether you've got the grid to connect to. And I know this might sound trivial, but effectively many projects today, many deep geothermal projects today are still stranded because of the lack of local infrastructure. An equivalent could be for oil and gas, uh, what we have experienced with the lack of um, uh, pipelines and surface infrastructure for some unconventionals in, uh, in some areas of the world. So you, you need to understand your local market, your local in infrastructure, your connection, connectivity point. And if it is electricity, do you plan to go into the national grid or you're planning to go into a local smart grid? That already might be a determining factor in deciding the price of electricity. Understood. Okay. So another thing that I, that's particularly important if I go to the oil and gas side is this issue of ownership. Now, you know, in essence, if you're going to write a competent person's report under pretty well any of the oil and gas standards, then, then, then the, the issue of ownership of the oil and gas has to be established. And if that in most countries is uh, the government or the crown, then there are usually some sorts of fees or royalties to pay. So could you, could you talk a bit about the ownership of heat within the jurisdiction of the globe, you know, what typically happens? Can you give us examples of where the Crown owns it or the, the Republic? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a key question, really, when it comes to uh, geothermal projects and specifically projects on, on, on heat. Um, so let me give you an example in the UK, uh, yeah. where, where I'm based, and then I can probably also uh, talk a little bit about the situation in, in the US. Um, well, in the UK, although the Crown owns the right to oil and gas, the law is silent on the ownership of geothermal heat. What actually constitutes geothermal energy is not currently defined in the UK. However, as heat can only be transferred from the subsurface to the surface by a medium of some sort, for example, groundwater, then it appears that any substance suitable to this purpose will be capable of ownership. So when when you talk about water, uh, you will also trigger the attention of the relevant local environmental agencies. And they will want to know what you're doing with that water, whether your project is by any chance at risk at, of, of altering the geochemical composition of that water, whether it's a risk of altering the um, pressure equilibrium in the subsurface, which could then in turn cause maybe subsidence, um, and whether you're at risk of altering the thermal equilibrium uh, in the subsurface, which maybe could induce some localized thermal cracking. Now, if we, if we, if we, if we go to the US instead, well, uh, many states have potential for geothermal energy development, as we know, but some have legislation that leaves the nature of the resource unclear. So how this resource should be exploited and establishing definitely who the primary regulator is needs to be clarified. And this tends to go uh, state by state in, in, in the US. So states may classify geothermal resources under legal doctrines that govern groundwater appropriation or according to oil and gas and mineral principles, or they might be using a, a hybrid system. So under, under property law, um, heat is not a tangible item that can be owned. And so the question tends to be around, again, like in the UK, the carrier of the heat, such as the water. And um, 
An interesting aspect of geothermal energy is that some geothermal fluids may contain minerals, in which case minerals ownership rules may apply. And and it's, it might be perfectly possible that uh, you have multiple products from a geothermal project and you might need to abide to different ownership rules. Do you know, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the difference between, for example, AGS and EGS, or indeed in some cases, just using natural aquifer pressure to bring hot water to the surface. And I just suddenly got struck with the thought that depending on how you define your reservoir extraction strategy, it could change the ownership. So if it, if the molecules of heat if are not something that can be owned, then an AGS system would, would say, well, you own it because you're producing the heat using your own water and the water never touches the, the rock. An EGS system, you could argue, well, you, we're, we're lending you the water because we're going to send it back up the producer in due course. But a system where you're using natural reservoir energy, then actually you're extracting uh, water from the subsurface and therefore a quite different regime might apply. I think you're right in that the, the three scenarios you have highlighted, the conventional hydrothermal system, the EGS system where you bring in artificially the circulating fluid in the created heat exchanger in the subsurface, and the third case of closed loops, they are all different. So clearly in hydrothermal conventional systems, you take out simultaneously the fluid and the heat that it carries, but then these days, especially, we re-inject the fluid as well. You have to demonstrate to the authorities where you're injecting it, uh, etc. But at least in, in hydrothermal, it's clear you're extracting both, at least from the production wells. In EGS, yes, you bring in artificially a fluid, which, by the way, may be another sustainability issue, uh, given that we are facing in the world a water shortage crisis. So we need to make a case for uh, upscale of EGS where we need to take the water from somewhere else. And, and then, again, you're producing, but then you're bringing it back. Once you start the loop, yeah. you bring it back underground. In, in AGS you're not extracting any geofluid, which is the reason why there are some proposals of EGS, that you're not depending on the existence or the production of a geofluid, but yes, you're extracting the heat. Okay. Before I turn to the quite substantial number of audience questions that have come away, I do want to ask this question because this, after all, is an SDE discussion. And that's that there are many oil and gas specialists uh, within the Society of Petroleum Engineers uh, who are looking to pivot or have great interest in looking towards geothermal. Can they get involved in the kind of things that you're doing? Can, can they learn how to apply the framework you're describing, develop it? Talk us through how SPE might get more involved in what you're doing. Thanks, Tim. Well, first of all, the SPE is already and has been uh, involved for many years in the development of, of uh, the UNFC family of documents. The SPE is represented in the expert group of resource management of the UNECE. And uh, in fact, the UNFC is already bridged to the SPE PRMS. And so the collaboration has been closed over the years and we envisage that to continue over the years. Um, Possible ways are obviously for anyone out there who is interested to contact the UNEC via the email which is put on the website of the UNEC to ask to be included in the EGRM annual meetings and everyone is welcome to, to participate. These annual meetings tend to happen usually in April every year. 
And then you might even be able to volunteer for specific subcommittees. And so as you start to participate in these annual meetings, you will be able to understand what is of interest to you, what is not of interest to you, and where you would like to, to, to help. It's all voluntary work. Um, I can also envisage particular synergies with the SPE when it comes to deep geothermal solutions. I mentioned earlier that the UNFC geothermal specifications covered the entire range of geothermal resources, but maybe the SPE is more interested in, in deep geothermal. And, and we, we, we're all interested in, in uh, further development of guidelines for the quantification of the resources. So UNFC is really a place for classifying your estimates but maybe co-developing best practices for the quantification of deep geothermal resources could be an exercise where the various organizations involved could come together. Interesting, yes, because of course there's an awful lot of modeling skills and we have our own uh, technical yeah. uh, sections that do just about all that. Okay, there are a few questions I just want to uh, uh, whiz through from the audience. Um, some of them, are, I mean, they're not specifically on the, t on the topic that we've described, but I think they're still worthy of, of, of sharing. Here's one. Is levelized cost of geothermal energy an output of the assessment in a feasibility study, and is it a good indicator? Uh, interesting question. There are two questions in there. So first of all, is it is an output? I would say it's uh, it's an output of the overall project feasibility assessment that the owner of the project or the interested party would be performing. And then once you have that uh, economic assessment, you would be able to flag in UNFC whether that corresponds to uh, ready to go, not ready to go, or in between. And, and so on, on the E-axis of the NFC, you would, like, you, you would be able to place the findings of your economic assessment. So the NFC doesn't do the calculation for you as a magic tool. The NFC is a place for you to locate your economic assessment. Yeah. And the second question is, is it a good indicator? Well, uh, it depends on what levelized cost we, we, we mean here. Historically, we have been comparing energy sources in terms of the levelized cost of electricity. That would not be a fair indicator if you are considering a heat geothermal project. So we tend to also use the levelized cost of heating um, uh, or maybe we should be moving forward towards a um, liberalized cost of energy for which an apple for apple comparison is not straightforward. Okay, I thought it would be a difficult answer. Okay, here's another one. Um, I'm interested to understand how the modelling of convection in the formation and conduction into the well is modelled, as this seems to be unpredictable. Um, well, again, the UNFC doesn't do this modeling for you. The UNFC is a classification framework, so allows you to enter it with the previously quantified quantity. So this is a quantification question, but I'm happy to, to take it as well. Um, so the how do we do the modeling? The modeling will really be strictly related to the type of project that you have. As we said earlier, is that a hydrothermal open loop project? Is it an EGS project? Is it an AGS project? Is it a deep boholite exchanger? Is it something else? Uh, the engineering um, flow modeling and thermodynamic modeling tools for each of these uh, opportunities change quite significantly. Whether there is 
convection in, addic in addition to conduction, this will be based on your understanding of the uh, local uh, subsurface situation, whether you have um, permeability and what scale of permeability you have, if it does allow large scale movement of fluids or not. Okay. Here's one. Um, how would, why would regulators, uh, for example, stock exchanges, be interested in applying this framework? Um, well, we have a present already. So before uh, the UNFC um, came out for geothermal energy resources, in 2008, Australia put forward the Australian Geothermal Code, and that was driven specifically by the uh, Australian stock exchange requirements. So we have a present already, and you will find online some resource assessments that were carried out according to that code. Now, interestingly, a few years later, uh, the state of Queensland in Australia has actually been the first um, uh, state in the world to legislate the use of UNSC for geothermal resources. So we take it as a very positive and encouraging acknowledgement that UNSC has done it right for geothermal. And now from the very same country that first developed a geothermal framework, we have the blessing for the UNFC. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I think that original uh, 2008 um, standard was more based on the mining standards, which, which kind of sense yeah. in Australia because they, they're very strong on the JORC standards. Okay. Yes. All right, I'm going to ask you a cheeky question now then. So why might geothermal operators perhaps not like to have operate, uh, regulation? <laughs> well, obviously, if you have no regulation, it means that probably you don't even have royalties to pay, that uh, you don't have to... Uh, a report uh, to too many uh, organizations so certainly many many operators may, may 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 see this as an opportunity to have less restrictions less demands on project development yeah. however my personal opinion is that as we hopefully start to really upscale geothermal energy implementation worldwide that we will want to be careful about not having projects that interfere with one another and I'm referring to thermal interference as well as hydraulic interference. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, the equivalent of a kind of equity equity determination in between blocks yeah. and oil and gas projects. Yes, you'd, of course, you're going to have the same thing. Yeah. As okay. well as um, being able to show the potential. So if you don't use yeah. these, these tools, you, you're not able to attract the attention of, of governments and investors to, to say, hey, there is, there is money here. I mean, I think that's that's where I come from. I say, you know, ultimately, in order to raise money, we've got to convince bankers and equity providers uh, that, that we have confidence in what's down there and what the level of uncertainty is, and indeed where the project is in terms of its uh, its its development, both commercially and technically. So, yeah, I mean, it's it seems absolutely correct that we should go all out for this. I rather regret that uh, we are almost out of time. Um, so. What perhaps I'd ask you, Joya, is is there any last remark you want to make, completely tangentially if you so desire, um, just to, to to finish off so uh, to, to leave something for our audience to think about? Thank you, Tim. No, I just want to say I've really enjoyed this chat and thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you and with the audience. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you again, Joya. It's, it's a, great, a great pleasure to discuss this with you. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.